Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner. It's a revisited episode, if you like. This week, we're catching up with Chris Corner. When we last spoke, he had recently finished at Thomas Cook. His career's moved on a few times since then. So we last spoke back in January 2020. We're in 2023. So it's three years on. Uh, things have happened. Uh, moved a couple of roles. Had some other challenges in his career that he's dealt with and moved on to but i'll let you get onto the show enjoy it when we last talked he was at thomas cook which had been through a pretty tortuous time very interesting times enjoy that podcast and then at the end of the show we catch up with chris now so it's a nice segue to uh, one of our earlier episodes in 2020 enjoy the show In this week's show, I'm joined by Chris Corner, the former deputy group treasurer at Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook Group has been a British global travel group for many, many years, originally founded way back in 1841. Then more recently, in June 2007, there was a merger of Thomas Cook between Thomas Cook and then My Travel. The group operated in separate segments, so tour operator and airline, and then operated travel agency, all came together. So listed on both the London Stock Exchange, Frankfurt Stock Exchange, but more recently, been through some times, Thomas Cook and all UK entities went into liquidation earlier this year in 2019, leaving 21,000 employees out there, you know, looking for a new role and, and everything else. And, you know, we'll talk about some of that stuff. We don't want to dwell on it too much in the show, but enough about that. You can talk about that later, Chris. Chris, tell us about your career today and maybe how you first got started finance slash treasury, as it were. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Hi, everyone. I guess, uh, you say, Lloyd's my first introduction to, well, to, to Treasury, but also to, to the working world. So I joined their graduate training program straight out of university. Lloyd's of London is an insurance market, some 300 and something years old now. And the Corporation of Lloyd's, which is the part that I worked for, was essentially an umbrella organization that was providing services to the insurance market, which, which was made up of a number of insurance practitioners. So so I wasn't involved in, in the actual technical insurance activities. Mm, mm. The, the, the team I was part of was, was providing treasury services to, to, to the market as a whole. I guess when I left university, I, I felt I had an interest in a financial career. I hadn't had any particular experience in that. I hadn't done any uh, internships or, or secondments or anything of that sort. But going through all of the uh, graduate recruitment literature, that was available at the time. I was very interested in getting into financial organisation in London. That seemed to be where all the roles were. And also, when I was reading through this literature, Treasury sounded like a really interesting part of banks and financial institutions that I was looking at. So during my first year on on the the graduate scheme at Lloyd's, I arranged for one of my placements to be in the Treasury team there. And and it it just felt like it was very, very natural fit for me. Uh, When I went in there, I had real interest in in what they were doing. And so immediately started on the treasury exams uh, at that time. And and really, you know, it's just just on from you from there. Yeah, I I felt it it was the right thing for me. I I guess at that time, I didn't know that 20 plus years on, we'd we'd still be here. And and, and, I spent all of that time uh, in treasury, but it it felt right for me at the time. And and, uh, as you say, a number of roles have have, have come and gone since, but it's always been where I want to be. So you had that role within, you know, sort of, it's an overall company, as you say, sort of overseeing insurance and financial services and things. 
But then you made a, a very move to a, a real solid company, as it were, and dealing with solid stuff because you joined Johnson Matthey, who the FTSE 100, so top company, but chemicals, pressure, precious metals, massive group, but you know, real commodities and products. So quite a shift. How was that? How was that sort of change, as it were? Yeah, I mean that, that that was a very intentional move, and again, I mean looking back, I was still very you know, very new, very naive uh, professionally at that time. But I, I did recognise that for all of the good things about Lloyd's of London, it was a very unique organisation, and I was very attracted to, tre- to Treasury. I was, say, I'd been attending a number of the qualifications classes and, and seminars and so on, and talking to others, I thought I actually want to get into a true corporate treasury function. Mm. And that's where the, the opportunity came up with Johnson Matty. And, and they were really looking for someone there at that time who could come and, and be a bit of a, a jack of all trades because they had very good people in lots of positions, but not necessarily cover across the whole team. Mm. And so it gave me that opportunity to go in and really learn every aspect of, of a corporate treasury function. And again, I, I had a great time. It was a really good business. Really enjoyed my time there. And in, yeah, in the same time, I, I got to see and learn about the FX ceiling. I got to learn about bonds and guarantees, precious metals management, as you say, for the, for the chemicals side of the business as well. So that was a, a really good move for me and one that really set me up very well for, for the ongoing career. And what was, you know, and Johnson Matthey itself, you know, what, what's Treasury like in a chemicals, precious metals company? Is it very commodities focused or what was the sort of the working, you know, the, the Treasury workings of it, as it were? Well, I guess at the time, my role say, was, was very operational. And again, I, I look back on my time there and it, it felt that it was very much focused on commodities. Again, there's a lot of, lot of work going on with precious metals refining at the time. So there were vast quantities of, of you know, incredibly valuable materials flowing through the business. And so you know, we, we had a couple of people dedicated to, to managing the precious metals position on a, on a day-to-day basis, but also you know, some quite considerable funding amounts and FX exposures, say that from the bonds and guarantees point of view, where you have a customer's materials that effectively you're, you're holding on to uh, while you're refining those before sending those back to, to the customer. So there's a, a huge amount of operational work to do there. Mm. At that stage of my career, I wasn't very involved in more of the, the, the senior activity and, and, and working with the board. So I, I can't really talk to where there might be differences from Johnson Matty to, to other businesses that I've worked in today. But again, operationally, there was a, a huge amount to do and a, and a real good Great breadth place of, to uh, of treasury experience. Again, absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was a sort of Stan, you, you sort of contributor role, as it were. You then joined GE Insurance to actually lead a team. How was that sort of that transition? You know, had you led people at JM or, you know, was it, you know, GE was your first leadership role because that's a key theme about your roles ever since and that was back in 2002. Yeah so GE was my, my first management experience and again the, the move from JM really came it, it just felt to me like a natural time to move on. I've been there about four years I'd, I'd had a couple of promotions during my time there but it did feel like if I wanted to make that next step and, and to get the managerial experience and perhaps see another another part of the business quite early in my career I decided I, I, I didn't really want to become specialised in one particular sector and so I wanted to get out and see see, see another part of the world. So GE gave me uh, that opportunity, a, you know, a very different organisation, a very different culture from, from when I was at Johnson Matthey again, Johnson Matthey being a very long-standing, very British feel to it. And I think you know, GE was a much more results-focused organisation, a much more demanding environment to be in. And so from a finance 
professional point of view, I think I really developed in terms of you know learning that actually it's not just about putting in every ounce of effort that you have, but it's about delivering results. And if you deliver those results in GE, yes, doors open and, and, and you move on. If you're not delivering results, then you, you absolutely get told about that very quickly. Yeah, straight away. And and then as yeah. we're going into the leadership aspect, because we've got some people listening today that will be like, oh, yeah, I'm just about to move into my first, you know, boss job. And, you know, I've got to lead and manage a team. You know, what sort of piece of advice from maybe that role in particular, you were leading a team of four, all treasure activity outside of the US, but sort of what were you, what were you like as a boss? How did, how did you do it? What were your keys to success? I think, I mean, frankly, I think the, the, the biggest key to success there was that the team that had been put together, and it was actually it was a startup treasury function that, that we had there for, for that part of the business, which was ahead of a potential sale or flotation. And, and the overall uh, team, the, the group treasurer there was, was an internal hire who'd come from GE Capital in Paris, and he had put together a really good team of, of people and, and exactly he had me reporting to him but then managing uh, the day-to-day team but again yeah. you know i've got some some really good people around me and i think also actually having everybody starting at about the same sort of time you know, you've got everybody coming in with the same mindset no one's bringing any baggage everyone's trying to deliver the same objectives we've all you know we've all bought into the same thing and so that made my job quite a bit easier because you know you weren't dealing with lots of conflicting interests and, and priorities and old knowledge stages of their of, of their career that's right that's right so that, that was really important i guess my management style particularly then was, was really about just just leading by example mm. again I'd, I'd had the really good experience from from johnson matty so i felt i was able to do all, all of the day-to-day uh, nuts and bolts of, of, of the treasury uh, operations and to be recognizing from others in the team where people needed bit of hand-holding to get them up to speed on what they needed to do or actually where people were very good at what they did already and you could just leave them to, to, to get on and do that. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, from, from that point of view, it, it was a relatively straightforward exercise, but, but also I was very conscious at that time, again, in my first leadership role, you need to be looking around and learning from others. So yeah. again, yeah, picking colleagues, okay, who's doing things well? And again, I had a good boss who was a, a very active communicator and really taught me the value of, of you know, frequent communication with the team, being visible, over-communicating, if anything. But again, much better that way than, than not at all. standing back yeah. and, and, and people feeling like you're disinterested. Absolutely. I know that GE are a big proponent and always have been of technology and automation and things like that. What was the sort of technology journey for you? Again, people listening will be like, oh, you know, GE automate everything, or was it was it good, or was it you know was it a new kind of thing? Because this is back in two thousand and two, and now we're in. So you know, we're talking seventeen years ago, but you know, yes, we, yeah. we've both seen it change a lot over the time. You know, I've just been to a couple of back to back conferences in the Nordics, and and everyone in the room, you know, was a technology provider. It just seemed, and it just seems that that you know that's the the, the constant march of things. I mean, we'll get back onto yeah, that later. Yeah, but yeah. you know, what was it like there? Well, in fact, I mean, that, that is, you know, dredged up from my, my memory, Project Pass, which shows how important it was to me at the time, productivity, accuracy, simplicity, and speed. So this, right. this was what was, you know, it was like an, an overarching technology transformation work stream that we had. And it was really high-level sponsorship. It, you know, there was no question we were going to deliver this, but, but it, it was such a big project. And it became almost overwhelming because we were trying to deliver so much. And I think you know this was a, a good lesson for me to learn in, in in this business that actually taking on 
much more manageable bite-sized chunks is often a better way to deliver progress, particularly yeah. around around technology, because they, it, this was across the whole of the, the, the finance function being led out of, of the US. Again, it was a, not a very much a global business and trying to deliver a finance transformation globally with almost a you know a big bang implementation you know i guess as with most finance projects you'd end up with you know, some, some some delays to implementation deadlines and so on and in fact what ultimately happened was that the g insurance business got bought out by swiss Re in the summer of, of 2006 just at the point as we were about to finally implement all this work so there was a good couple of years of work which was you know all doing the right stuff all for good reasons but ultimately we never got it up and running to the extent that it was designed to be live. Yeah. Something else came up in the meantime. That's right. And so again, I think key takeaway is just you know be a little bit more realistic. You need to be ambitious still, but but realistic in terms of what you want to deliver, rather than trying to come up with something that is absolutely best practice, uh, but perhaps takes you know takes takes far longer to put in place. And then. You did insurance, then precious metals, insurance, you know, different kind of insurance sort of state. I think it's quite a different Absolutely, company. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, just, just, just on that with GE, sorry, but, you know, the, from a career point of view, the role of insurance solutions was interesting because it was a, say it was a startup treasury team. It was mm. uh, going to be my first opportunity to have managerial experience. But I also wanted to then think, well, when that role comes to its natural end, you're in GE. You can work in pretty much any business in pretty much any sector in pretty much any country that you want in the world. Hmm. Uh, and so that was really a, a big part of my decision to, to, to move to GE. Of course, what ultimately happened with the acquisition by Swiss Re, the moment that acquisition was announced, employees are prevented from talking to GE about any other roles because they want yeah. to retain the talent. So to, and again, I've been there four years. I was beginning to get a little bit restless and think about the next role. And all of a sudden, that avenue was closed off to me, which was, was a little bit unfortunate. But again, as you say, coming on to my subsequent move at, at that point, it was a question of, well, I need to change company because I didn't want to be, as I said, I didn't want to become an insurance treasury yeah. specialist. I wanted Brilliant. to get out and see another sector. And so with yourself, you, uh, well, I placed you as the group treasurer at Capita Group. And again, yeah, yeah. some people might know Capita, some people are like, who maybe you could explain you know because interesting business and lots of different businesses in there maybe you could explain that yes it's a capital support services business i guess when i was there which is around about 10 years ago now but over 10 years ago it had a pretty much 50 50 split between public service contracts so essentially doing work for government departments Mm. and then 50 percent in commercial contracts quite a big chunk of that was within the financial services uh, industry so supporting insurance businesses with the claims management, for example, supporting the registrar's business with all the process outsourcing that goes on there. And it was a really interesting time to be part of that business. If you go back and look, I mean, just a, a fantastic growth story from, from Capita. And in fact, the guys who set up the business back in the late 80s were still running the business. And, you know, it was a you know, three or four man business then, still running the business when it's a FTSE 100 business with 30,000 employees mm. 25 years later. So, yeah, it was a really interesting place to be. It had that benefit of, of acting as though it was a, a small business, very entrepreneurial, but you still then had that scale, which from a treasury point of view uh, made it a you know, really interesting place to be. And talk us through, again, the sort of setup for you and treasury. How did you, you created this, you know, from scratch? Really, there were some treasury guys, but it was a sort of refreshing you were the first, 
you know, focused group treasury, if that's the right way to put it. But you know, maybe explain that for people, if you would. Yeah, so again, a business of that size clearly has to have treasury activity. But as you say, Mike, it, it was sort of done in different parts of, of the business. There'd be yeah, some people in accounts doing some of the business, some people in the cashier's function doing some other treasury activity. There was a financial advisory business within Capita and the head of that would take on all of the funding activities. So it was very much a, it wasn't really even decentralized. It, it, it was just a, you know, not integrated function at that time. They wanted me to come in and try to pull everything together. So uh, again, that, that was really interesting because, you know, I didn't need to worry about it being a question of me having to set up all the processes from scratch. There were good people doing the right things, mm. but being able to then just pull all of that together into a centralized function was a, a really good opportunity. And of course, building on what I've done at GE, where I've been the number two and helping set up this new team, actually at Capita now, I had the opportunity to be the one leading on this. So again, for, you know, that was a really positive career progression for me as well. And that was the sort of shift. You'd been looking at the the shape of some of these businesses. Johnson Bathy, okay, UK-based company, but very international, lots of overseas and everything else. G Insurance, you know, you're doing all the treasury activities outside of the US. Then Capita, business process outsourcing, FTSE 50, all the funds come in UK virtually with a few. I know there were some overseas, but very limited. You know, what was that like yeah. for you? So putting your FX stuff on hold sort of thing. It didn't really play a part. There was so much to do yeah. and so much of interest that the fact that the FX piece, as you say, sort of went on hold. And there was some very interesting Indian rupee hedging that we were doing at the time. We had a you know, massive offshore office out in, mm. out in India. And of course, if we're doing contracts for, for 10, 12, 15 years yeah. and they're effectively being serviced from India, you need to know what your, your, your cost base is. So, you know, very difficult even today, to be hedging Indian rupees out that far. So you imagine that sort of 10 or 12 years ago. So you know, there was some interesting FX work there. But as you said, that wasn't really the, the core of what I was doing. But there was so much other interesting stuff going on, whether operationally, but also on the funding side. You know, did a number of private placements when I was there in the, in the US market. We were pulling together uh, the bilateral bank facilities that we had to pull that together into a single club facility. So, you know, there was a lot to do. And... Yeah, you know, the absence of the FX work, which again, that's always been something I've enjoyed, the international nature of the various roles mm-hmm. that I've had. Yeah, it wasn't really there at Capita, but it, you know, that certainly wasn't a problem for me. No, you know, you grew it and things. And again, you know, with that, you were there for a number of years, but time for a change and you you joined BBC Worldwide. So again, for the people listening today, they're going, oh, this is, you know, it's it's a great checklist of some of the, you know, really great solid treasury roles. So then you became the treasurer of BBC Worldwide. Again, people know BBC, but I know that it's different. And perhaps you could explain again, you know, it's a global name. Everyone knows the Beeb. But what did you do there? So BBC Worldwide was the, the commercial arm right. of the BBC. So uh, yeah, it would take BBC content and sell that Abroad, so within yeah. the UK and, and with the, you know, the the BBC's licensee arrangements, you know, you, you essentially couldn't be uh, selling that to UK consumers. But of course, you've got all this fantastic content that, that's loved around the world, whether by expats who, who want to get hold of that content, or indeed, you know, just others uh, around the world who can come to know and love for, you know some of the programming. So that's what that business was doing, and we had the commercial freedom to go and do that in a way that say, didn't apply to the, the public service broadcasting uh, element of, of the BBC in the UK. Again, this was a, a startup treasury function. Effectively, at the time, there was a contemplation of 
BBC Worldwide being floated off or, or, or sold. So they needed a standalone treasury function to be able to manage that. So again, it was about going in and, and just taking existing processes and making sure that they were really embedded within the worldwide business and there were the right discussions going on with the various finance directors around uh, the rest of the business to to ensure that Treasury was really supporting worldwide in a way that was going to support any subsequent uh, separation of that business. And, you know, again, BBC, you know, team-wise and things like that, again, did you run a team there or, you know, how was it sort of set up? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a small team. There were four of us at the, the, the point when you know, we got the team fully established. But, but again, I, I think you know, what I really benefited from worldwide was the experiences that I'd had both at Capita and at GE, where again, I, I'd been helping to set up teams initially and then, and then had my, my, my first go at, at leading that. And of course, there are things that you would always do differently in, in these situations. Mm-hmm. So having a, you know, another opportunity to do that was good. But, but it was also very attractive because I was really enjoying that, that aspect of what I was doing. Again, having pretty much a, a blank sheet of paper to, to create a new team, I found really interesting. I think you know, it, it's a fascinating part of, of what we do. You know, sometimes you go into a business and everything's running very smoothly. And that can be great because it allows you to focus on you know, some more of the, you know, the, the technical challenges that have been faced by the business or to engage more widely in the organization. But actually, you know, at that point in my career, I found it really interesting to be really thinking about the, 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 the detailed structure of the team and how best you set that up to deliver uh, yeah, a really strong treasury function that the business needs. Yeah. And then BBC to well, BBC Worldwide and then BBC itself, or how, how did the two sort of mingle, as it were? Yeah, so, so I mean, we we, we, you know, we worked very closely with the BBC Treasury team. Ultimately, they were the ones who who owned the bank relationships. You know, all, all of the funding for the BBC came into uh, the BBC Group Treasury team. So ultimately, anything that we were doing in worldwide had to be within the structure that was set by uh, the BBC Group Treasury team. So yeah, we worked very closely with those guys. I would sit down at least weekly, not more often than that, with, with the group treasurer there to make sure that we were aligned in, in, in the work that we were doing. And in fact, over time, it became apparent that there was you know, a little bit of an inefficiency that, that was built into the BBC's treasury operations by virtue of having these two separate teams yeah. and a bit of confusion, I think, externally you know, from, from the banks when they're not quite sure at times should they be talking to the group team? Should they be talking to the worldwide team? Yeah. And as long as there was a, you know, the, the potential for this separation of, of worldwide, that was something you just had to, to deal with. But actually, that was taken off the table by the arrival of a new chair of the BBC Trust, probably about 18 months or two years after I joined. And at that point, it, it was really a relatively simple conversation to say, you know what, I think we actually need to put this team back together. Given that the, the external landscape has now changed, this needs to be a consolidated function. And actually, that, that was a, a dynamic that was going on elsewhere across the BBC at the time, the other functions where Worldwide had set up standalone teams. But, you know, Treasury was really one of the first teams that at that time you know, we, we took the opportunity to, to put everything back together. So, again, it wasn't what I'd gone into the BBC to do, but from a, a personal career point of view, I'd had a couple of years separating and you know, setting up this standalone team. And just as that particular part of the role was coming to an end, 
we then turned around and put it all back together. So you then get you know, another couple of years of of that, of that restructuring experience uh, as well. I guess from that point of view, we took the opportunity then to be looking at all the, the, the use of technology at the time, making sure that we're developing you know, use of the CMS, for example, and bringing on some of the other technology partners. So again, another really interesting piece of work. So there you know, very much two phases to my time at, at the BBC. With you know, with the cash flows, you know, everyone's buying the media. You know, it's it's obviously a big thing and things like that. The cash just came in all the time. It was very solid, healthy business. Or you know, was it challenging in that aspect, or not? Not so much. Uh, well, I guess again, big difference between BBC Public Service Broadcasting. Right. I think you got the license fee. I, I might be a bit out of date now, but it, you know, it was three point seven, three point eight billion pounds a year, mm. and effectively it just came in, as you say. So from that point of view. Yeah, the, the the funding was never a particular challenge for the BBC, but within worldwide, it was a commercial business, mm. and you know that was subject to you know, fluctuations in consumer demand and and you know, general economic sentiment uh, in the various markets that, that we worked in. So, you know, there was certainly some exposure to those to those matters there. Mm. I think as well, you know, when you come to thinking about some of the other risks, though, you know, again, huge FX exposures for that part of the business. So, you know, whilst the funding was relatively comfortable, certainly on the, on the, on, you know, the public service side, there were you know, some, you know, some uh, very meaningful uh, other treasury activities. You move from that to the, well, the move to Thomas Cook. We'll, come, we'll bring it up today in a minute because it's been through some challenging times of late. But, you know, a move to a travel business, you, you know, sort of ticking a lot of boxes. You've done insurance, you've done precious metals, you've done BBC. You, oh, I know. Let's move to a travel group. You know, how did that come about? Or was it just the, the attraction of a, another great treasury role? Well, I, I think to, to be honest, you know, when, when I was looking to move on from, from the BBC, and again, I was in a, a good role, good people around me, you know, from a day-to-day point of view, no reason to leave. But I, I did feel I wanted to, to move on to get back into that corporate treasury environment. Again, a bit like when I was at, at Lloyd's, BBC yeah. is, is a great business, but it's not a big organization, but it, it's not you know, a true corporate treasury function. And so I was able to... to have a good look around and, and, and bide my time waiting for the right roles to come up. Mm. And when I first heard about the Thomas, uh, the Thomas Cook role, you know, it sounded quite interesting, but you know, I wasn't convinced about it. Mm. I went and had the interview and you know, meeting the team, hearing about what needed to be done there, hearing about the profile of Treasury within the organisation, I was absolutely hooked. And in fact, that, that, I remember that week, I, I, I had three interviews with different organisations and at the start of the week, Thomas Cook was very much third on my list. Yeah. And by the end of the week, it was, I've got to work. I want this yeah, job. That's, that's, that's for me. And you yeah, say it yeah. was, you know, sort of all over the place or, you know, sort of needed. So what did it need or explain that? Well, I, I think I, mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as all, all, all over the place, but it, it was going through a really interesting time. So, again, going back a little bit of history, 2011, 2012, that the company was virtually out of business, you know, for weeks on ends, you know, could almost fall over at, at any point. And there had been this big recapitalization back in 2013 that really, you know, gave the business an opportunity to rebuild. But again, even before I joined, so 2013 to 2015, mm-hmm. massive cost cutting, really trying to reposition the business as much more of a, a digital player starting to close down all these shops, we had about 1,200 stores around the UK, a lot of overlap. They'd been in acquisition with uh, the co-op travel business. So they were often a co-op and a Thomas Cook store 
sometimes you know side by side on the high street so this this huge transformation effort had already happened and i think if you'd asked me to join that business back in 2012 2013 i would have probably thought it was too high risk for yeah run away run away by 2015 yeah they they, they got a couple of runs up the ladder towards getting where they needed to get to but it was still a very long ladder and there's still a number of steps still to go and i thought you know that was where there was so much interesting work again having been in all these companies that were great businesses but but frankly you know they were the more comfortable end of the credit spectrum you had banks saying would you like to borrow some money how much would you like to borrow you know it was you know relatively straightforward from a credit perspective to then go in somewhere like thomas cook where you know you really had to fight for every last pound that you were getting from the banks really tough negotiations around terms on those deals that you were doing yeah that was going to be a complete shift for me and one that i thought would really fill out my cv because you're going from, as I say, sort of a very comfortable end of the credit spectrum to something that is right on the other, right on the other end. And and for the first few years, and I was there, you know, it was just short of five years before, before the business went under. But you know, we were making progress. It was slower than we wanted, but it was going the right way. And and it was only then, summer last year, summer 2018, that you know things started to unravel. But we had a you know a number of years of, of, of making some some good progress in that business. And with that, you know, and, and again, not to deep dive into it too much, but was it just the markets, or you know, it hit hard, or you know, what was the sort of what was happening there? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's a combination of so many things. I mean, there's obviously been a huge amount of press commentary on, on this you know, in the aftermath of, of the business going into insolvency. Mm. You know, it's not something that you can give a, a, a quick answer on, but I, I guess the two key factors for me are you know, the amount of debt that the business had taken on, but essentially caused the recapitalization I referred to earlier on right, uh, back yeah. in 2013. But at that stage, we were still, you know, really highly levered. And I guess the expectation at that time was, you know, this was a sustainable business, but, you know, we need to make sure that we are delivering uh, the transformation really quickly. And in the meantime, we are paying very high rates of interest on some very long-term bonds. So you end up paying, you know, a huge amount of the, the cash that you're generating as a business each year. It's, it's a you know, really competitive market. It, it's low margin. Mm. So yeah, you know, you're, you're generating this cash, but a huge amount of the cash you're generating is just going and just servicing your debt. Yeah. And what you need in that environment is, you know, a few years of a bit of a clear run of being able to get back on your feet, and then start to pay down that debt, and then the money that you're bringing in, actually, you can start to reinvest in the business. And, and really, you know, we, we never got that clear run. Mm. And you think from from my time in the business, 2015, the awful beach attacks in Tunisia, which closed down uh, the Tunisian market. You know, mm. customers weren't allowed to travel to Tunisia, so obviously we can't sell holidays there. That was a big year-round market, of course, big year-round destination. Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt, again, very popular yeah. UK customers in 2016. All the, again, the awful Turkish terror attacks and, and disruption almost every week. There'd be something else. Turkey was about 30 Three percent, thirty-five percent of our business in, in 2016, 2017. There, there was massive airline disruption, air traffic control strikes. It's a, it's a feature of, of, of air travel. But 2017 was particularly high. It was something like an extra 50 million quid that was spent on compensating passengers for delayed travel in 2017. Again, 50 million quid that you would otherwise be putting back into the business. business. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then 2018 summer heat wave. I mean, all of these things. Listeners, you know, could well think, well, that's just part of being in the travel business, but they were all things that we'd not seen to that extent before. And I think yes. that the heat wave is a great example of that, where, yes, you have heat waves from time to time, 
but it was the the first time we had such good weather uh, across all of our source markets. So, you know, we are UK business, uh, Scandinavian business, continental European business. The weather conditions across the whole of the northern half of Europe mm, mm. Uh, in 2018 were stronger than had been seen for something like 150, 200 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And of course, in that environment, people quite rightly think, well, I'll just stay home. Yeah, don't need a holiday. All of that, yeah, that's it. All of that late booking market disappears. And then what we subsequently found is actually that fed over into 2019 because people had realized, well, you know, last year we could have got that holiday that, you know, would have been costing a thousand pounds ahead. Actually, we could have got it last minute for 500 pounds ahead. So this year, why don't we wait until the last minute again? I haven't touched on Brexit yet. Again, it's just, yeah, every year there was something that that didn't give us a clear run. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, because of the long-term history, we never actually had enough buffer, never had enough money in our back pocket mm. to be able to ride out the cumulative uh, effects mm. of all of these different storms that, that hit us. And, and ultimately, that's it. once it did start to unravel, liquidity gets taken away, you with all these, with the providers credit across the business that start getting nervous, just at the point is that you need people to be standing still and, and, and retaining their support for the business. Mm. Yeah, under, you can understand each individual person being nervous. Yeah. Collectively, if everyone could stand together, you know, it, it might have been a different a different situation. But again, you, know, you, you can't be blaming people for taking the decisions that they need to take. You know, their particular organisation. You know, the effect on Treasury or you know Treasury coping during that time. How did you guys get through it? Yeah, well, <laughs> with great difficulty. I and mean, I think that we had a great team there. And actually, again, whilst it didn't end well, we'd, we'd done some really positive work in in the, the few years that I was there particularly around financing. So actually back in 2017, we did, we did a new bank deal and we increased the amount of funding that the, the, the group was able to, to get on a committed basis at that time. We refinanced one of our bonds to, to significantly, in fact, two of the bonds, but one, one of them made a significant reduction in the amount of interest that we were paying. You know, we timed that very well in terms of going to market. And in fact, it was the first European high yield bonds we launched after Donald Trump had just been elected uh, in the US. So a time mm. of market uncertainty, but actually we, we benefited because no one else was going to market at the time. And so there were all these investors looking to do something with their money. We went to market at that time and it turned out to be to be a really good deal. So mm. yeah, there were some, some some good opportunities from a treasury point of view during the last few years, but also very difficult in the last 12 months to be managing a situation where this is it. every stakeholder, every investor is getting more nervous you know, we had the banks committed liquidity there, but there was a huge amount of uncommitted funding that we had within the business, whether that was around our FX and fuel hedging program, uh, if it's around the uh, the bonds and guarantees that we issued to some of the local travel regulators. Mm. We had a huge fuel procurement program and sort of the fuel suppliers were starting to get nervous and perhaps you know, looking to reduce some of the payment days that they made available. To us, regulators were wanting us to, to perhaps put up some uh, some additional funds to protect you know, the local consumers there. So again, you've got all of these different stakeholders just sort of you know beginning to to pull up that liquidity lever and, and trying to manage liquidity in what is already a difficult trading environment mm. became even more difficult. And so you know, as we look to the the future for you, obviously you're out there and everything else, but. You know, when we started, you, you know, talking about you and, you know, big theme is you're a great team builder. 
leader, if you like, and that's a, a key part of you, if you like. And if people are looking at your LinkedIn profile as we approach the end of today's show, you know, they'll look back and they'll say, wow, that's, you know, you've got this great profile. You've got MCT, so the top level of treasury qualification in the UK. You've got, you know, solid career path and things like that. So there'll be people reading through that and going, do you know what, That that's, I'd like to emulate that. Treasury analysts, managers, you know, they want to follow in new footsteps and some of the treasurers out there, maybe some of the more internationals are going on, some great war stories there. But, you know, what sort of advice would you give those guys if, you know, they say analyst managers first, what nuggets would you give them? Two or three maybe that as we close off today's show that you can sort of share with them and, you know, the guys that, that, that should have a similar approach to you about treasury, if that's the right way. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, certainly for, for those more the, the the analyst and maybe manager level, you know, study is, is really really important. I think you know, it, it's a very competitive marketplace when it comes to moving between treasury roles and to have qualifications behind you that can distinguish you from you know from from others applying for the same roles is very important. It also acts, I think, as a, a, a really useful benchmark when potential employers are, are considering your application. Uh, again, it, it sort of cuts out quite a lot of you know that interview where you're going through testing someone's technical skills. If you know they've got different levels of the, the, the corporate treasury qualifications, then, then that really helps. And again, in my own experience, again, I, I had the benefit of getting to treasury very early. As I talked about earlier on, I, I got all my, in those days, it was the MCT exams completed when I was 27. And, and that really, I think, yeah, set me up very well that when I was then looking to apply uh, for other roles, again, employers just know what your level is uh, and they almost take uh, you know, take some of those uh, technical skills uh, for granted in, in that application. So I'd, I'd really encourage people to work out you know, what's the right qualification for them. Very much for me, it was MCT. Uh, I didn't go down the accounting route uh, intentionally. But again, for different people, it might be different subjects. But work out what, what's going to help you get to where you want to get to and then absolutely commit to completing that uh, as quickly as possible. I think the other thing I'd say is, is around you know, making the best of whatever role that you're in, whatever situation that you're in. Again, we've touched on some of the, the, the issues I've had to face during my career where yeah, my company's been acquired, uh, we've had a restructuring, I've gone insolvent. Yeah, n- none of these things I, I obviously choose, choose to happen, but actually the fact that they did all happen has made me a better treasury professional. And so when there's a situation that's perhaps going a different way to, to what you wanted, embrace it. You know, see the opportunities in that. It, it might not be ideal. It might mean that you need to change your approach and, and move on quickly, or more quickly than you'd otherwise have expected to. But, you know, you can find the positive in anything. And I think, again, you know, Treasury is an area. You're not going to have the benefit of just going in and rolling along very comfortably day after day after day. You need to be embracing whatever changes going on around you. So, Chris, thanks for you know just talking through there a lot of your experience, and you've had lots of different things. Before we move to the close of the show, I just wanted to explore with you just just your general. You're seeing the world of treasury, you're seeing it from a number of different aspects and everything else. What do you think are the biggest challenges, maybe, for treasurers and you know treasury professionals? And how should, you know how are you approaching them? How should you think other people? You've been to all these conferences and everything else. What, what do you think? Is it the rise of technology or is it the people aspects? Or what's, what's the key thing for you in your head, as it were? I, I think, you know, you need to 
draw the distinction between the, the day-to-day core activities of Treasury, if I can mm. put it that way, and, and you know some of the other challenges that, that can arise. So again, you know, a lot of my role today is no different from 20 odd years ago when I started in terms of you know, things that we discussed around the funding, FX, bonding, cash management, counterparty risk. That is the, that's the core of Treasury. Mm. But of course, you, know, you, you can't take your eye off making sure that, that 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 continues to operate very well. You, you, at no point can you think, well, we've got that bit done. I can now go away and, and yeah, do, do, do this Brexit project or, you know, or, or whatever it might be. So I think from that point of view, you know, treasurers have to constantly be aware of the day-to-day. And I guess, you know, the technology feeds into that. There's always ways, you know, whilst the, the, the risks are no different from 20 years ago, the way you might manage those risks very much will, will change and develop over time. So I think, you know, that's important not to lose sight of the, the housekeeping, if, mm-hmm. if you like. But then, yeah, on the other hand, that there are these continuous, feels like continuous new challenges that are arising. And, and we touched on, you know, some of those that, that have affected Thomas Cook. But I guess, yeah, these challenges, and I'm going back here, you know, if we go back 10 years to, to the global financial crisis and everything that, that followed from that with recession, credit crunch, mm-hmm. Eurozone crisis, you know, Brexit, Brexit subsequently. Yeah, all of these things at the start of my career were almost unimaginable. Mm. And yet nowadays, you know, we don't necessarily know what's going to be the next one next year, but you know, there is always something new going on. And I think it is about making sure that as a business, treasurers as as the risk managers of a business are, are thinking that far ahead, thinking yeah. about yeah. You know, what could be happening further down the line and, and perhaps not trying to you know, pretend they've got a crystal ball, but making sure that whatever happens further down the line, because something will, because it has done every year for the last 10, 12 years, we are in a position to be able to deal with that. Yeah, uh, and again, from, 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 a Tom, from a Thomas Cook perspective, you know, we were always aware that we didn't have the level of committed funding that we wanted. It wasn't that we got caught out when things started to unravel. But we just hadn't been able to get to the point where we got all that funding committed. We hadn't got a sufficiently strong credit rating to attract sufficient investment in the business on a committed basis. But you know, we were constantly trying to get there, and in the end, we weren't able to get there quickly enough. But it was you know, something that, again, in a business, treasurers as risk managers need to be the voice in the business saying, hold on a minute, you'll have other parts of the business that are wanting to go into the new market to launch the new product to make that really exciting acquisition. Mm. And they may all be great things to do and they may be the right things to do. But you do need the treasurer just to be saying, yeah, but what if, what mm. if? You know, there's a danger that we become you know, known as, as doom mongers and, and oh yeah, that, that guy over there is such a pessimist. So you, you need to temper your language. But again, it, it, the experience of Thomas Cook in particular is one that you, know, you really mustn't take your eye off. You know these these, these new challenges, these these new risks that just keep emerging. Yeah, I think I think you, the great point you made there is that the, the new norm is that it's everything's uncertain and prepare for that all the time. Always be prepared yeah, in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's it. Awesome advice there. So beat your competition by getting your qualifications because they're going to make you stand out, give you that rubber stamp of expertise. If that's the right way to put it, and you know, grab the uncertain. You know, because, you know, it is an uncertain world and you can see, you know, anyone will be able to see through your LinkedIn profile that you've been through some solid companies some challenging times, but you've written it out. So, yeah, well done. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast with the amazing Chris Corner. When we last left the show, or Chris last left the show, 
And we didn't abandon him. We just left him in a very safe place. He was looking at a few different things. Chris, when he finished up, we last spoke on the show was with Thomas Cook, who had just recently finished. Chris, well, let's pick up the story from there. What happened to you post that last conversation back in January 2020? What happened to you next? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so I, I've, I guess I've worked my way along to High Street in a couple of roles, a couple of contract roles since then. So, I mean, firstly, not long after we, we spoke last, I was delighted to have the opportunity to work with Marks and Spencers, great UK High Street name. And this was actually reaching beyond core treasury in more of a commercial finance role, uh, supporting the business's increased strategic focus on their bank and services team. So this is uh, the team within MS that that leads the MS bank activities, MS Energy. It's a couple of joint ventures that they ran and also working closely on a number of the digital initiatives across the organization around customer credit, payments journey and loyalty, as well as the gifts cards. So you know, the bank and services team was a, a very important and growing team and one that's continued to expand since my my time in the business. So that was a, a 12 month contract that I did there and you know lots of really interesting work. But I you know very much wanted to get myself back into Treasury. And again, the, the episode that we've just listened to, you know, I'm 25 years in, in corporate treasury role. So I wanted to get back into the front line. So then into another contract role with WBA Walgreens Boots Alliance, yeah, the major US pharmaceutical retail business, very much larger than my usual organization. I mean, WBA has annual sales in excess of a hundred billion pounds. So, you know, treasury team there was sort of 30, 35 people. So whole size and scale that was very new to me, but there was some really interesting transformation work going on within the, the treasury team. And I was asked to come and join to help lead what was called the center of excellence. So the front office operations and controls functions within global treasury to help lead them through this period of change, a couple of major internal projects. Firstly, a massive banking transformation program, which was simplifying all of the banking from around about 10,000 bank accounts down to under a thousand. So major simplification there and also a, a TMS implementation, uh, which is always an interesting uh, project to work through for any treasurer. But alongside that, there were some really interesting corporate initiatives underway. So they were in the process of disposing of Alliance Healthcare, uh, which was a major pharmaceutical wholesale business, which was around about a fifth of the business from a sales perspective, but perhaps half the treasury complexity. Again, when I joined, they weren't quite sure you know, what the team was going to need to look like 12 months down the line. And that was that was part of the the, you know, the the nature of this being a contract role was to go and help with that. Of course, while I was with the business, there was a strategic review of Boots. So for our US listeners, Boots is you know, the equivalent of, of Walgreens, but in, in the UK. And then they were looking at Boots's position within the business and whether that should be sold off. And ultimately, after about six months, the decision was taken not to sell Boots primarily because of the challenges within the financial markets. You know, we started the strategic review in January 22, just ahead of the Ukraine war. And clearly those external circumstances got a lot, got a lot more difficult as we went through the year. So the Boots strategic review concluded with, uh, with no change, but a huge amount of really interesting work to be gone through there. And alongside all of that, there's been a rebalancing of the team's geographic profile to, to better reflect the group's increased strategic focus on US healthcare. So again, a huge amount of change going on across the business and across the treasury team as a whole. So really interesting to, to help work through uh, work through that. That finished at the end of last year. Yeah. But before we go on to that, I just want, yeah. to, I want to just dive in there. 
So you worked in a, a few different interim roles, and obviously it's a bit different to being in a permanent role, but they've been longer scale, longer term. And you, you've talked about in the past about key to successful treasury and things. What are these experiences of being in a couple of in doing a couple of interim roles? What have they taught you so far? I, I think you know, f- first and foremost, the, you know, the fundamentals of treasury stay the same whether you're in a permanent role or an interim role. So you're there to to make sure you've got prudent financial risk management. Across the business, you've got the you know the funding, the cash flow, the, the hedging, uh, all working efficiently for for the business. I suppose as as an interim, you have some some rather short term targets, but it's important to balance the need, you know, the business need to continue to do the right thing for the medium and the long term. So even you know looking beyond the time horizon that that I expected to be with each of the businesses, you know, and, and trying to deliver things today so that my role and my time with each business was a success. You, know, you need to make sure that you are keeping that that eye on what's needed longer term. And I suppose part of that, you know, working with people in in my teams that were going to be with the business a lot longer you know, in, in permanent positions and making sure that I'm constantly checking in with them that you know what we're doing right now to deliver on the here and now is still consistent with what's going to be needed beyond that term. What would you then say are the keys to being a successful interim? You touched on it a little bit there, but if someone said, yeah, that was, that was Chris was great in that. What are the takeaways, if you like, if someone is listening today and they're an interim or they're thinking, oh, should I go in an interim role? You know, is it about going in and learning the culture or getting to know the people, but at the same time having the back, right, treasury's long-term or being into that? How, how does it work for you, would you say? I, I think, I mean, my, my start point was to make sure the absolute alignment between myself and my boss when I joined as to what was required. I think in, in an interim role, you know, you absolutely have to hit the ground running. You don't have the same scope to to sort of take a while to build up your knowledge of the business. So clearly there is always an induction. There's always a period in which you are getting to understand uh, the company and the team and the role, but needing to hit the ground running within that interim role. So make sure you've got absolute agreement with the boss as to what's what's expected and keep checking back in. So we would have, you know, weekly updates with the global treasurer at WBA, for example, just to make sure that, you know, what I'd done last week, what I was going to do the next week was on track. And over time, you know, that that weekly became fortnightly. But uh, I think, you know, at, at the outset it's it's getting that uh, that agreement. And and also then just making sure you've got really strong relationships across your your immediate team. So work out, you know, who are the the coalitions, I suppose, you know, the coalitions that you need to build, which ones are the absolute priority, which which groups of people do you need to be pulling together and working most closely with at the start and then expanding that as you go through the year. And I guess, you know, frankly, you know, making choices and being intentional in, in choices around what I'm not going to do. Again, if I was a permanent role, you probably try to take on a little bit more than you would do as an interim. But again, as long as it's checking back in with the boss and they're in agreement that this is what I'm going to do, ABC, XYZ, I'm going to leave to one side and and making sure that that's, that's agreed and understood by everybody. When you say that, do you, do you mean that's more like, oh, here's a three-year project and you go, actually, I shouldn't probably get involved in that because I'm not going to be here for three years type of thing. Is that like yeah, you? that's it. That's it. Or, or indeed, you know, you want me to do 10 things, but actually, you know, I can do these five things really well. Let me get those done and we can come back and look at the other five things later on rather than go in and try and take all 10 things on. If, and if you're only going to be there 12 months, you might run out of time. That's a great piece of advice, actually. It's, again, it's not for want of doing. You want to get the 10 done, but you're like, actually, just be realistic. And you know this as a treasury professional. Yeah, that's it. 
Okay. And then bring us up today. What was the, the new challenge? So the new challenge, I am continuing to, to, to sell things to consumers, but moving slightly away from, from the high street. So a company called Kingfisher, which is an international home improvement company, they have five what they call retail banners, the most well-known of which are B&Q in the UK and Ireland and Castorama uh, in France. So five of these banners operating in eight countries across Europe. So Kingfisher is a component of the FTSE 100 index and you know very much back sort of towards the uh, the size of company that I've typically worked with uh, in the past. So the, the profile of treasury at Kingfisher is uh, a lot more closely aligned with some of my skills and experience prior to being with WBA. So as I say, some, some really good experience at WBA, but getting back much more closely to the, the type of treasury profile that I've, that I've worked in previously. And so as we wrap up today's show, it's been amazing to catch up with yourself as well. And we, we talked about either the weathering the challenges, because obviously that was based on your Thomas Cook background and everything else. And well, we'll keep that title, but you know, the challenges for your next steps, you know, what recommendations we gave, gave some takeaways before, but any further reflections like we're now crumbs, we've been through COVID, we've done everything else. If you look back over that time, we're three years later, what would you say? Well, I, I think, again, you know, thinking back to how I felt about finishing at Thomas Cook, obviously quite sort of bruised by what was a really tough experience there for all involved and, and weathering the challenges was a, was a great title at that time. I, I think most of your listeners will now be feeling much the same having gone through the last few years. So we, you know, we're all a lot better these days at weathering the challenges. And I think we all expect those challenges to continue. We're just in this uh, sort of permanent state of change, permanent state of challenge, you know, being hit by various external factors, whether it's sort of, you know, geopolitical conflict or political disruption, climate crisis, all of these things that we need to continue to make sure that Treasury remains agile and resilient against. And I think for me, the, the big challenge is to make sure that we as Treasurers can you know, we keep looking for opportunities to expand our influence. We've got to make sure that we, we keep the day job and all of the core treasury activities on track. But you know, let's make sure that we are working with our business partners to continue to keep treasury aligned with the business strategy as that evolves. And business strategies will inevitably evolve to, to, to deal with all of the, the challenges that are being faced. And I think that the one area that I would pick out is, is all of the sustainability challenges that are going on. And yeah, this isn't something that is directly treasury or, you know, it, it touches every part of the business, but I think it's a great opportunity for, for treasurers to use their financial and risk management skills and rigor, work with and, and, you know, secure credibility across, across the wider organization. So I'd really encourage everyone to, to get involved in whatever their businesses are doing around sustainability and, and, and broader ESG activities. Cause I think there's some, some really valuable treasury skills that we can, we can bring to our colleagues there. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris, for another great show. Another good update. Yeah, keep, keep resilient out there. I think we'll stick with that one. Yeah, great words. And uh, thanks very much, sir. And look forward to catching up soon. That's great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mike. Hello, it's Mike here again. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you did, then maybe you want to follow the show or subscribe, depending on where you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, or another great place to listen to the show from. It's totally free and means that you'll be the first to see each and every week when we release a new show. And maybe whilst you're there, you could even leave a quick review. Reviews and ratings are among the most important metrics for a podcast to effectively rank. And as you can probably appreciate, the podcast is a lot of hard work to produce every week. It'd be amazing 
just take, say, 20 seconds, leave a quick review of my amazing guests and their great career stories, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and I can't wait to see you soon.